You're listening to The 80-20 Show, an inside look into the music industry. Well, hello, everybody, and welcome to The 80-20 Show. I'm your host, Mike Zimmerlich, and my next guest is Rachel Gutman. She's an entertainment lawyer from Nashville, and she's represented everyone from artists to producers, labels, managers, even major corporations and public bodies. We had a wonderful time talking about how she went from a college student all the way up to being a partner in a law firm. She also talks about how she loves her beat-up car and why she loves being underestimated. So it is my absolute pleasure to give you Rachel Gutman. Hey, Rachel, how are you doing today? Hey, Mike, I'm great. Thanks so much for having me on the podcast. I appreciate that you thought of me. How are you today? Of course. I'm doing fantastic. Thanks for asking. You know, it was so funny because I think what we just met via Zoom not too long ago and we just knocked it off so well that I immediately thought, okay, I need to have you come on as a guest on the podcast because we just we just had like we went on for like over an hour on what was supposed to be like a 15, 30 minute just intro kind of a thing. I know. And that, you know, but that's some of the fun of being in the music industry is that we get to connect over something that we love so much, which is music and and creative people and how we can help them. And I just love that about you. And I'm so glad that we were able to connect. Absolutely. Did you, so did you have a passion for music like all your life? Like how, how'd you get into wanting to be in the music industry? Yeah. So um, let's take it back. I'll take you all the way back to when I was three years old. Three. Um, okay. Actually, it was really when I was two. And I do remember this moment, by the way. That's the crazy part. Um, so when I was a little girl, I was growing up in Washington, D.C. Um, and my family was very big on the arts. And we had um, some family friends, um, one of whom is a um, opera singer. And her daughter um, is a classically trained violinist and is a few years older than me. And when I was a little girl, I got taken to the daughter's um, violin recital. And I remember after the violin recital going to Chuck E. Cheese with the girl and her family. And I remember telling her mom, who was an opera opera singer, I remember saying to her, I want to play violin too. And of course, the mom went to my mom and was like, she should be playing the violin. And my mom was like, she's like literally a toddler. What are you talking about? Um, and sure enough, after quite some time, um, quite some time being like, you know, six months to a year, when I was three, my mom got me a quarter size violin. Um, and for those of you who started playing very young, you'll know they're incredibly small instruments at that point. And, um, and I started playing at three and I played until I was 18, but I realized when I was a teenager that my skill set wasn't really in performing music. I enjoyed it. I mean, I, I, I know that feeling so well of, you know, when it wells up in your chest and it's just like the music is filling your spirit and your soul. Um, I love that about performing, but I wasn't really into the whole, you know, practicing and working, you know, through different runs and different, you know, parts of songs. It just wasn't for me. But I knew that I loved reading and researching and writing and coming up with arguments. Um, My dad owned a used bookstore a little later in my childhood. And so I was reading voraciously as a little kid. And when I was 16, my parents took me to New York and we went on a tour of NYU. And during that tour, the tour guide mentioned the newly at the time, because remember this is like 2003, 2004, the newly formed at the time, Clive Davis Music Business School at NYU. 
And I felt like a light bulb just exploded in my brain. And I was like, this is what I'm meant to do. It's not performing. It's using my background in music and using what I love to do, the reading, the writing, the researching, the coming up with arguments and making points and crafting that in a way where I can support creatives. And at first I really didn't know where that was gonna go. I was like, should I be a manager? Should I be in publishing? Should I be on a label? What do all these people even do? You know, so I, I went to undergrad. Um, I, I eventually found the music, um, music business and recording industry program at Middle Tennessee State University. And um, I liked the big public school environment. And so I chose to go there. And while I was there, I took a class on copyright law and I just fell in love. Um, I still have my notebook. This was spring 2007. I still have my, you know, spiral notebook from copyright law. Wow. And I have little doodles in the margins um, thinking through um, what eventually became Spotify. Um, and of course, at the time they were already launching it overseas in Sweden. Um, but even in my head, I was writing what if we just distribute intellectual property on an advertised, you know, an advertisement revenue-based model? And then of course I found out about Spotify and I was like, cool, they did that. Cool. Um, but yeah, I just, I fell in love with it. And I just knew that that was where I was supposed to be. But my journey to get there was not, you know, immediate. It took a number of years. Wow. That's amazing. You know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's fascinating that I, I was doing the same thing when I was in college. I was also uh, doing, uh, was being mentored in jazz for trumpet at the time. And also same thing. I love performing, but I felt that it was not necessarily the right career choice for myself. So I knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I didn't know exactly what. So I had two notebooks in my classes, one that was taking notes and another one that was just coming up with business ideas. And my business idea at the time ended up being Pandora and less F less at FM. So this was back in like the mid to the early, early 2000s. So it's like 2004. So oh my gosh. Yeah. So like, this is so funny that you mentioned that you were doing the exact same thing. Cause I was just super stoked and, and psyched about doing something and doing something creative and innovative at the time. And, um, so that's when I kind of started coming up with that idea and that eventually led me to doing 8020 records. So um, it's kind of funny how uh, our paths were very similar in that way. That's so so what, cool. So what made you end up deciding on landing on entertainment law? Cause you, you mentioned going to music business school and, you know, learning about all these different roles. So what made you decide on entertainment law? Um, it was really, it was a mixture of my copyright law class and then the semester after that, uh, fall 2007, I took um, a class at the time, it was called legal, legal Problems in the Recording Industry. Now they've changed it to like contracts in the music industry or something. Um, and for me, we had to read um, a, a current ongoing case. And at the time it was, um, it was involving um, YouTube at the time. I remember looking at that and I think it was like Viacom versus um, Google. Cause I think Google had just bought out YouTube. Yep. And, um, and I remember I was in a group, um, like a small group to create this legal argument based on what we were finding online. And of course, and by the way, one of my group members from that project is now one of my clients. So wow. funny, funny full circle story there. Um, when he would get a kick out of this cause it's just too funny how that ended up happening. But, um, we, we just crafted this argument and I had so much fun coming up with the arguments and the presentation for it for the class. And I was like, okay, I think this is where I'm supposed to be. 
I think this is what I'm supposed to do in life. Um, and so I took some other, you know, business law classes. I took a class on the international entertainment industry. That was fun. Um, I, I did a study abroad trip to Russia um, and I did some learn, you know, learning about intellectual property there. Um, I, uh, I wrote a thesis on software distribution in India and doing it on an um, ad-based revenue model to help um, India's communities have access to software, even though they're so low income, it's such a high software production country. So I studied that and did that. And I just realized that it made my heart happy. And at the end of the day, that's all you can ever ask for in life. You know, I meet, I meet so many songwriters and artists and producers and creators, and that's what fills their soul. And what fills mine is helping people figure out their business and do things in a way that makes sense for them long-term. And so I ended up going to law school. I graduated from Tulane Law School in New Orleans in 2012. Um, and while I was there, I, I realized that my education at Middle Tennessee State University really prepared me to be involved in the music industry. I mean, from day one, I was very well equipped. I was uh, volunteering um, with some lawyers for the arts programs and you know, just, I, I knew what the issues were. I knew how to spot the issues and I knew how to do the work. And it was surprising. Um, it's also thanks to a few entertainment law firms that let me intern for them over the years. Um, but, but truly, you know, finding a, finding a job in the entertainment industry is an incredibly difficult task. And, you know, it's, it's one thing if you say you want to get into, you know, content creation or, you know, digital marketing, but being an entertainment lawyer is its own special beast because the group of people who do entertainment law, and I say this because I've studied this group of people for about 15 years now, um, the group of people who do entertainment law, it's the same names and the same faces because they build a wonderful base of successful clients and then people want to work with them over time. And so over the years, you know, even when I was in undergrad, I was seeing who was doing the work and I was seeing that new people really weren't breaking in. And so I realized I had a bit of a, a challenge ahead of me. That is that I had to build some business myself to launch this. So what I did um, was I ended up staying in New Orleans for a number of years and I joined um, some litigation defense firms. And I basically tried cases for a living. Um, I made my money trying cases for major corporations, insurance companies, and public bodies. But then on the side, um, of course, also as part of the firm, I built out a, um, a practice of artists, musicians, writers, producers, managers, um, small record labels, historical record labels that honestly, I feel so honored that I've even been involved with them in any way, shape, or form. Um, just truly incredible, um, you know, projects and, and people, but you know, it, it takes a long time. It's a big grind and to do it right. You really have to be in a, in a major music market to be able to do it full time. Um, and so for me, new Orleans was not the end all be all. And, uh, that's how I ended up back in Nashville. Um, and if you'd like, I can go into more about that story too. Cause that is a that's a crazy one. Okay. Well, if you say it's a crazy story, you can't just say like, we'll go talk about it later. Now you're going to have to talk about it. <laughs> so, so me being in Nashville, it's really a full circle moment. 
And it's such a, it's such a testament to relationships in this business. Um, so in 2018, I had been trying cases and litigating for about five years and it was, I had fun. I like being a litigator. I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie. I really did enjoy it, but it wasn't my dream. My dream was to work in music and entertainment. And so one day I called up my former undergraduate professor. Um, her name is Stephanie Taylor. Um, she had done that Russia study abroad trip with me. She was actually my thesis advisor. Um, and we had become friends over the years. And I just, I just called her and I was like, Stephanie, what's going on in Nashville? You know, I'm, I'm looking to live my dream. You know, I'm now in my thirties. Is anyone hiring an entertainment lawyer? And she hired me on the spot, on the phone, nine years after I graduated from undergrad. That's and, incredible. And I am now her law partner. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. But it took me, I mean, but you have to look at the timeline too, though. You know, I graduated from Middle Tennessee State in 2009 and I graduated from law school in 2012. And it took me until 2018 to get that first full-time shot to do this. Yeah. And, and when I took that shot and it's, it wasn't easy to take that shot either. Um, I left a very lucrative job. Um, and I, I, my husband and I, we sold our house in New Orleans. And at the time we had five dogs and we moved this, I, this is, this is actually one of the funnier parts. We moved to Nashville and I somehow found a rental that let me have five dogs. Okay. That's really impressive. I wrote the dogs into the lease too. Like that's my, that's one of my <laughs> special moments. Well, because, because, you know, that's my family and I, I, I had a lot of, a friend of mine had passed away and I, my husband and I had taken her three dogs with our two and um, we wanted to keep them together and the family gave us their blessing to do so. So I found, um, I spent a couple days hitting up every rental company in Nashville. They all hated me. They all hung up on me most of the time. But there was this one guy who was like, yeah, I'll rent to you. Like, you're good. I'll rent to you. And so, um, and so I ended up moving to Nashville in June of 2018 with, um, I had, I owned a house at the time and I had a rental property in Nashville then that I was, you know, leasing and I had no guaranteed salary at all. I did this all on speculation. I decided to take a huge life-changing potentially, you know, it would be a potentially damning risk for me. And I knew that. Um, but I also knew that it was my shot. And, you know, in this industry, when you know that you have a shot to live your dream, you know, and, and I had wanted to work with Stephanie. I, I had, you know, admired her, looked up to her for years. I knew we shared the same value set um, and that she would do business the way that I do business. Um, and we really believe in um, transparency, honesty, and being fair. And so when I moved up here, I just said, let's just give it a shot. You know, what's the worst that could happen? It doesn't work and I'll figure it out. I'll find another, I'll find another litigation job. I'll, you know, I'll find, or I'll wait tables. Who cares? Um, well, thank goodness it worked. Um, within, within a few weeks, I want to say it was within about two weeks. We knew that Stephanie and I knew it was a good fit. Um, and then within the first three months, I ended up uh, bringing in enough to pay for myself. That's incredible. In three months. Yeah. I had That's a book. I had a book big enough in new Orleans that I brought it with me. Um, I have some amazing clients who I'm so grateful for and they trusted me and they, and they trusted my choices and they stuck with me and uh, it just worked. And uh, ever since then, it's, it's been 
I wake up a lot of days and it's a dream come true. And that's all you can ask for, right? It's, it's what you mentioned is like you, you want to live the life that you want to, to lead. And I think that's so important. And I think that's why so many musicians uh, struggle so much trying because that's what they want to end up doing. And uh, so I agree. I think, you know, at the end of the day, you have to be happy with what you're doing in life and that you feel like that what you do is is helping, ideally helping others and contributing in some form or fashion. Absolutely. I mean, it's I, I'm a big believer in, you know, doing the right thing. And a lot of the time doing the right thing is not doing the right thing for myself. It's doing the right thing for my client. And I'm extremely comfortable with that because I just, I want to watch these incredible creative people, whether they're artists, writers, producers, I want to watch them win and succeed. Have you ever been in a position where, uh, where the, the doing the right thing was, uh, that you had to sacrifice something of yourself because you did the right thing? Uh, pretty much every day. Um, <laughs> no. Okay, fair. But, you know, I think, and, and there's the thing, and the reason why I want to mention this is I feel like that I, I want to work, lead this into somewhere where basically the way I see it is that I always, I'm the same thing, I'm in the same position where I like to do the right thing, even if it's at uh, detriment to myself, because I feel truly believe in that that might be a short-term loss, but I'll, but my long-term gains will far outweigh the short-term loss. Absolutely. I'll, I'll give you a, like a broad example of, yes. of some of that. So when, you know, a lot of the time I get, I get a lot of creatives who come to me with publishing deals or record deals or management deals, you know, all sorts of things that they sound like great opportunities. And then I look at the deal and the deal is such a nightmare that I just want to set it on fire immediately. And in those situations, I think to myself, you know, I and, and there's really never a second thought about this. It's more of just, I think to myself, well, this deal, you know, would have had a legal fee advance of X amount of dollars, but I don't want anyone doing this deal. So I'd rather just say, no, I don't want the money and let's not do the deal and let's move on. And that, you know, and that's what I have to do a lot. And that's okay because I really believe that I have to be able to sleep at night. And I have to be able to live with my choices. And if I don't think through those in a way that makes sense for my clients, then I'm not doing my job. It's not even just, it's, it's, and I think that's at its core, the most important part, but it's not just about that too. It's the fact that your clients trust you. Mm -hmm. Clearly they went, they continue on with you when you moved to Nashville. So they wouldn't have done it if they didn't trust what you were doing, that you were looking out for their own best interest rather than your own. So <laughs> Absolutely. Again, you know, it's that long-term gain where you are retaining those clients where if you were taking these deals that were not necessarily the best for them and they didn't feel end up comfortable with it and so forth, but the fact that you got a, you know, a big cut from the from the legal fees from the advance, you know, that's showing that you're more interested in serving yourself than them. And mm -hmm. in in this industry, we'll both vouch for this that reputation is everything. Yes. Yes. It's everything. Yes. And you know what else I will say too, you know, and I didn't mention this earlier, but I, I, I do want to throw this in. My husband, I met him in undergrad and he has stuck with me through all sorts of crazy moves and me calling him and saying, Hey, guess what? We're moving to Nashville um, and all sorts of other, or Hey, guess what? We're taking in three dogs in addition to our two. Um, I've done a few of those over the years. Poor guy. 
he's stuck with me for 12, 12 years now, poor guy. And, um, and it's one of those things, he's an audio engineer and a mix engineer. And over the years, he's had a few things come, come across his way that are honestly just egregious, you know, like we're not doing that. Um, and I remember one in law school where um, he was given a non-compete from another recording, from a recording studio in New Orleans. And it was, I mean, it was not in compliance with Louisiana law. And so I took a big red marker and I drew a huge X through it. And I said, you're not signing this under any circumstances, run away. Like you're not signing this. And I always think to myself, I did that for my husband at the time he was my boyfriend. I did that for my husband. And everyone I work with is somebody's spouse or partner or child or dad or mom or brother or sister. You got to do them right. You know, it's, it's, I mean, at the end of the day, my, my clients become my friends and they become, some of them even become like family to me. And I will not do that to someone. You know, I've, I've been there with my own husband and I, uh, I just won't do it. Yeah. And it's, it's right. It's like you want, you want to do right for, from other people. And I don't know where I'm leading with this. I just agree with you. <laughs> <laughs> it is all good. You know, it's, well, it's, but it, it's such a hard industry to do the right thing too. I mean, let's be honest. It's the entertainment industry as a whole in the music industry. They're, they're very much based on a lot of selfish image based principles. And we all know this. And I've, I've just seen so much of that over the years and it's not who I am, but I love working in this stuff. Um, I mean, there's nothing that gives me more joy than, than when people, and I say this and then everyone sends me demos, but this is my life. I love hearing demos. I love hearing unreleased songs. It gives me such a rush and there's just nothing more fulfilling than seeing people live their dreams. I agree. I'm the same way. It's, it's funny. I have this love hate relationship with demos, which is really funny. And, uh, but I love, but I, I get really excited when, um, especially when our own artists send me over things to listen to and so forth, the things that they're working on. And that's one of the greatest joys is, is being a part of the process and seeing some is seeing this creative come to life from the very beginnings, whether it's lyrics on a no in a notebook page, all the way to them recording at home a little bit just to do a demo, all the way into getting into the recording studio. And you know, that's one of my, my favorite things is to be a witness of that process. It's so, it's so fulfilling. I, I will say this, um, I, have a, I have a writer, very special writer, who has become kind of like a sister to me, truthfully, um, but also my client. But, you know, we've become incredibly close. And I've been with her now for about two years. And it's been such a journey. We just did, we just did um, her first deal about a month ago. And it was such a journey, especially with the pandemic. Um, it was so many ups and downs, so many. Um, and, and by the way, this is, this is a unique one, but so many, you know, hours and hours of phone calls and talks and you know, you're doing the right stuff. Stay on the track. You've got to, you've got to believe it's going to happen. The right champion's going to come along. It's going to come in time. When that champion comes along, there is no better feeling than hitting that point. Yep. I agree. So I want to go back for a second. Something you mentioned before about, you know, you know, you know, making certain kinds of sacrifices and making sure that, you know, you have your client's best interests in mind. Uh, I know that, some things that we talked about before was people underestimating you, 
when it comes to cases. So yes. can you can you talk a little bit more about that? Oh, I'd love to. And and it, and it it's it's such a funny experience for me. It's happened to me my my entire career as an attorney. Um, you know, to take you back into it when I was doing litigation, I would be um, you know, I was at the point where I was trying cases on my own. I was arguing appeals. Um, I actually argued in the US Fifth Circuit when I was 30. Um, that was my first uh, federal appellate argument. Um, and I went and did that all on my own. And by the way, the only reason I lost was uh, prior counsel didn't make a proper objection in the district court. So uh, I'll take that as a win for myself. But, you know, I remember I used to go take depositions all the time. And just for those of you who don't know, depositions are sworn testimony that is taken during a um, civil litigation matter to get information on the record before a trial. It helps the parties figure out what their legal positions are, whether they should settle or whether they should try the case. And I used to go and take doctor depositions all the time. You know what? Every single doctor's office without fail thought I was the court reporter. Every single office thought I was the court reporter. Wow. Um, and then I'd be like, no, I'm, I'm the attorney here to take the doctor's deposition. Every time. Do you, do you, did you figure out why that was the case? Um, truthfully, it's cause I'm a young female. Um, I mean, I mean, let's be very straightforward here. When I was doing that, I was between about 26 and 31. Um, and so, and, and I was very young to be doing some of the things I was doing and I knew it. Um, you know, I worked very, very hard because I wanted to learn as much as I could and get as much experience as I could. Um, and I think that's a common issue for women, sadly. Um, but I think me being a young woman, um, they would see me come in with, you know, a, I had a rolling bag cause I had so many documents with me half the time. And it looked like it, I mean, honestly, it looked like a suitcase half the time. And they thought I was carrying, um, you know, court reporter typing, you know, machines and things. And truly I was carrying medical records and files and outlines and, um, and questions and ways to get to what I needed. Um, so that happened to me a lot. And I think, I think that as a young female, it is something that's very common in my world, um, whether it is in litigation or in the music industry. Um, a lot of the time people will speak with me and I can't even explain to you the number of calls I've been on where people, um, well, let's say this way, men um, will mansplain to me my job. I've been, let's see, I've had, I've had, uh, I've had mechanical licenses mansplained to me. I've had, um, I mean, I've had all sorts of things. And these are things that I started learning about when I was 18 years old in 2005. Um, and so it's, it's pretty comedic. Um, I always, I always enjoy when people do that because it tells me that they don't realize the full extent of my experience and the full extent of what I'm capable of and all the better for me and my clients. But, uh, but I also think that some of it comes down to, um, gender norms, what society expects is gender norms and gender roles which at this point I, you know, I'm more sad than anything that those barriers do still exist, but I will say that they do. I've been there many times in my life. Um, and I think it also comes down to age. You know, I, I am in my mid thirties at this point, um, but there are quite a few people who 
think I'm a lot younger. I was, I was in a meeting a few weeks ago with a, with a much older artist, um, about 70s, 80s range. We'll put it that way in age. And, um, and the artist said to me, he's like, are you even old enough to be a lawyer? And I, and I was like, man, I've been doing this for like eight years. I, I am perfectly capable of getting the job done. But it's hard to believe, you know, I, I did go straight through undergrad and straight through law school. And I did, you know, do things in my, in my, you know, baby lawyer years, you know, that most lawyers, I mean, there are plenty of lawyers that haven't tried a case in their career. Look at our new Supreme Court Justice, Amy Comey Barrett, um, and no offense to her because all, all about women, you know, succeeding. But my understanding is that she never tried a case in her career. I have on my own and as second chair in the bigger federal trials. Um, so there's a lot to be said for, you know, getting experience and learning the ropes young and knowing how to do the work. Absolutely. And it's funny that you mentioned before about the fact that you like it when people uh, don't take you too seriously. In fact, I think that's why the car that you drive is one oh. of the reasons. Yes. Oh my God. Yeah. Let, let me go into this. So, so I live my life. I am extremely, and, and I think this is something critical for everyone to understand because most people are going to listen to this podcast and say, how the heck did she just like have a house, move a husband and five dogs, take a job with no pay, all this stuff. I'll tell you exactly how I do it. I live way below my means, way below my means. I, uh, I'm not a big spender. I don't believe in um, spending money that I don't have. And so what I love to do, and, and my husband does this too, because he and I, thank goodness, have the same financial philosophies. It would not have worked otherwise. Uh, we love buying these, you know, your nice little used, you know, probably certified pre-owned just to get a little extra benefit to it, but nice little used cars, Corollas, Civics, you know, the, the ones that'll last you a while. And I currently drive a bright blue 2010 Corolla it has the front bumper is, and this is not a joke, the front bumper is pretty much falling off. Um, and it is certainly missing at least one hubcap. And that was my fault. I hit a fence the day I quit my job in New Orleans. Lots of, lots of fun stories there. And don't worry, it was not, it was nothing illegal purpose. I just, um, I had gone to pick up a friend for dinner. And uh, let's just say I was so excited. I drove into this, you know, parking circle and <sighs> hit the, hit the, iron fence and lost a hubcap just threw it in my trunk and kept going but um and I just don't want to get it replaced because I think it's funny but um but no I think it's one of those things where you know I never want my clients to feel like my lifestyle is off of their backs you know I I work with so many developing people and you know and I love that aspect of what I do and and I will say you know my firm and I we do have quite a few people who are successful, you know, major label artists, number one writers, legacy artists, so on and so forth. But I think it's one of those things where I'm going to drive that thing till the wheels fall off because I always want to be reasonable in my choices and I want to be fair. And I don't want to be one of those lawyers who says to myself, Ooh, this major label deal doesn't look too good. I could get a, I could get a $15,000 advance on this or, uh, you know, or I can, uh, you know, just let it go. I'd rather be able to just let it go. And so I'm, I'm of the philosophy um, of living reasonably. Now, does that, you know, 
is my goal to drive that car until at least 2022 because I bought it in 2012 used and I'd like to get at least 10 years out of it? Absolutely. Did, did my law partner tell me a story the other day of how she drove her uh, post-law school car for 12 years and that just inspired me to keep it till 2024? Totally did. Um, I, you know, I just, and, and, I, and I get a lot of people, you know, especially in the music industry, they see me roll up and of course the car's also dirty because I won't get it cleaned. I just think it's funny at this point. And so they see me roll up in like my, my janky car, you know, that's kind of messed up. And they're like, can you please just lease something nice? And I'm like, no. No, I'm not going to do that. So I just live my life my way. Um, and, I know, and I know it seems strange to quite a few people, but I also know that I'm at peace with it. You know, I, I tell people all the time, if I wanted to be really wealthy, I'd be trying cases right now. Because I need some good money in that. That's not what I want for my life. And it's not about money. It's about the experience and the people you can touch and how you can help them. No, no argument here. That's for sure. <laughs> it's, it's a vibe. It's a lifestyle. So. Absolutely. Now for, uh, now I know for yourself that you love it when people don't take you too seriously because then mm -hmm. you can prove, you can easily prove them wrong. But I know that for so many, it can be very disheartening and detrimental. So do you have any advice for any, especially young women who are looking to get into the music industry? Do you have any advice for them if they're facing those type of obstacles? Of course. For number one for young women. My number one thing, and I, and I, tell, I, I work with a lot of young women, um, both as clients and as friends and mentorships. I have a very, um, I, I have a lot of personality. You know, I, I can be a lot. Um, and I, it's just, it's my style. It makes me happy to, you know, to be um, sometimes a little louder or laugh a little harder. And I don't hold myself back in that way because I don't feel the need to hide that about myself. But I know there's a lot of young women who are much more reserved. That's so okay. It's, I always want people to be authentic to themselves. Um, but for young women, it's one of those things too, where you have to understand, like, we have to take care of each other. You know, we have to watch out for, you know, and, and Mike, please don't, you know, take this the wrong way. Cause I'm certainly not, you, you are not one of these, but you know, we got to watch out for creepers. We got to watch out for um, predatory men and predatory situations. And we have to take care of each other. And there's nothing wrong with standing your ground. There's nothing wrong with saying no. There's nothing wrong with getting out of an uncomfortable situation. And you have to understand your limits. You know, you have to know, you know, like for me, for example, um, I go to a lot of, or I used to before COVID, um, I used to go to a ton of networking events in person all over Nashville, sometimes three a night. You know what I always did? I, you, I would say about 85% of the time, I didn't drink at those events. And, it, 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 and a lot of people, I actually got a lot of questions like, oh, are you, are you sober? Are you this? Are you that? No, I just didn't want to be intoxicated at an industry event. And to be quite straightforward, um, I know enough stories about women having things slipped in their drinks that I'm not here for it. And so I'm extremely protective. And if I can keep myself safe, I can keep others safe and keep my eye on things. 
Um, and also too, let's be honest, nobody wants to be sloppy at the networking event. Um, but I'm just, and, and I like to keep my head clear too, because when I'm doing those networking events, sometimes I'm taking client calls between them. You know, I'm driving from event to event, getting on the Bluetooth and getting on a call. I want to be clear headed so I can do business and hit up all the events. Um, but for young women, it's really, we got to take care of each other and young men too. You know, I, there's a lot of young men that I mentor too. We have to support each other and take care of each other and be kind to each other. I agree. I wholeheartedly agree. And, and also too, it, I think my personal belief is that we need to make sure that we take care of each other, uh, in general. I, I, it's not only do I make sure that, uh, I always say this, that my number one priority, um, whether it's my team, my artists, or just colleagues or pretty much anyone in general, my number one priority is safety. And that that's, um, you know, that, and it's safety and health. So meaning personal health, physical health, mental health, and the safety that goes around for all those different aspects of things. And that always is, and always will be my number one priority because you're right. So we have to look out for each other. Uh, you know, I always make sure that, you know, people, especially people that I know, if they're at a networking event, making sure that they're safe, you know, <laughs> I, I don't drink for those for those same reasons is because I don't want to be sloppy at a networking event, but the same token too, is that I want to make sure that everybody else is safe. I agree. I agree. You know, I also like what you said, um, you know, about health, mental health, you know, physical health, so critical. I tell people all the time and mind you, I am not someone who listens to my own advice. Okay. I, I know I say a lot of, I, I tell people all the time, take care of yourself, put your health first, put your family first, make sure that, you know, that you're at peace mentally. And then there's me. I just work my tail off and work, work, work. But I genuinely mean it for everyone else. You know, I, I, I work with a lot of women who, who have children. And I tell them all the time, go be with your kids. You know, I've, I honestly, I've chosen not to have kids at this point in my life because I love what I do too much. And because I still have four dogs. It's a lot. Trust me. Um, but I, but it's just not the right time for me and my husband, but that doesn't mean that I can't support other families and give them the balance and the, and the time together that they so sorely need. And that, and that not to get overly political, but that this country doesn't really provide support for in a sufficient way. Um, and so, you know, I just, I just feel very strongly about helping people live a healthy, balanced life even though I'm someone who doesn't, I don't hide that aspect at all, but yep. I never hold others to those standards that I put in place for myself. It isn't fair to them. It isn't fair to their families, their children, their friends. It's just not right. Yeah, I agree. So, um, having said that, so with your, I, I assume this also will extend to you, to your clients in general, correct? Oh my goodness. You should, uh, oh, I'm, I'm always about it. You know, if, if whatever they need help with, I tell them, hit me up. I mean, one of actually one of my favorite client stories, uh, crazy things I do for my clients. One of my favorite ones now, mind you, this is not a like mental or physical health story, but it's still pretty entertaining. Um, I had a client early in the career. Um, this person's now doing exceptionally well early in the career, the car broke down complete the transmission went out on the car completely and I was like well I have AAA so why don't you uh why don't why don't I just come on over let's get AAA to tow your car to the dealership give me your warranty 
and um, I'll get your transmission replaced, no cost. And at the time, the guy was like, you got to be kidding me. And I was like, no, you told me you have a full warranty. The car's less than a year. You got the warranty still. I just read the language. Let me get you a, a free car repair. Sure enough, I had AAA tow the car to a dealership. I had the dealership replace and repair everything. And I went to the dealership, picked up the car myself, $0 bill, and dropped it at the client's house. Wow, that's incredible. I was very proud of that one, actually. That was a good one for me. But, uh, and, and look, I can't do that in every situation. I'm not a miracle worker. I just use the facts I have and the information I have to get a good solution for people. But you've got to take care. You know, when, you, when, when we say taking care of each other, it's more than just for me. It's more than just being a lawyer. It's helping out with those things early in the career that, you know, some, you know, you move, you move, you know, a thousand miles from home mom and dad and brothers and sisters aren't there to help you. Your best, your childhood best friend can't get you out of that jam. I'll try. Has there been any points where, um, where, uh, try to put this the right, the best way. Um, is there any way, is there any, were there any examples of where you weren't able to do that? Where yeah, a lot. <laughs> do, do you have a, do you have a, I don't, can't do two specifics, but do you have a broad example of a time where unfortunately did not work out? Um, I'll give you a broad, just a broad example without getting too specific here. I've had, I've had a few clients over the years who, uh, you know, who will come to me with a deal, a terrible deal. I don't want to do the deal. You know, it's a, I mean, it's a heartbreaking deal because it's so bad and I'll advise not to do it. And then they'll go behind my back and they'll sign it as is. I've had a number of those. Um, please don't ever do that to everyone listening to this. Please lis listen, listen to me on this one, okay? If you have a, a qualified and experienced entertainment... Okay, we're back now after Rachel got her internet back. <laughs> you know, technology is such a strange beast. It is... We rely on it so much, but we have simply no control over it, you know? I... I tell people all the time whenever I'm on calls and I'm trying to pull things up or if internet goes out, I'm like, you know, I love using this, but I really can't control how it's going to work. So, out of, you know, out of our hands. I'll throw a commercial break in there. It's fine. You know, I'll, <laughs> so I should start monetizing the podcast anyway at this point. So I'll just throw a commercial in there. It's fine. It'll work. Now, Sounds like a good move to me. And <laughs> we, you know, we, we just have to all be understanding, especially right now where we can't meet in person and we have to use, you know, technology. I mean, we're so dependent on internet and on our computers right now. Absolutely. But um, anyway, to get back into a uh, conversation where we're talking about failure. <laughs> yes, we were Fail failure. Like my, like my internet. Um, <laughs> exactly. No, I, I mean, there, look, there's a number of situations where for whatever reason, you know, you're just not going to get it right. Um, and, and, you know, all I, all I can say is, you know, for creatives out there, the best thing you can do for yourself is find a team of people that you trust who will do the right thing for you and, you know, listen to them. You don't always have to follow everything they say, but if somebody's going to come to you, if you're, you know, if your lawyer or your manager is going to come to you and say, this is a bad deal, this is a really bad deal. Even if the opportunity looks good, maybe you shouldn't do it. 
I agree. It's it's amazing because I I talk to my artists about this all the time. When um, especially when it comes to producers, producers is a very funny one. That you know they'll sometimes will come to me and ask and mention about you know that they may have some creative differences with the producer or something along those lines. But even beforehand, even I actually prep them before they go into the studio and I say, look. Yes, this is your baby. This is your project. This is these things. But you are bringing on another team member, which is now the producer. They're going to have their own input, and it's to your own benefit to listen to them. You're you are hiring them not just to be turning knobs and you know and putting sliders down and then mix and mixing down your music. They're there to give you their expertise of recording, and it's to you're doing yourself a disservice if you do not listen to them. You don't necessarily have to agree. But you have to at least listen to what they're telling you. Otherwise, what's the point? I love that you say that. I probably should steal that for the lawyer talk. Um, yeah. Because truly, you know, when, when people hire a lawyer, you hire a lawyer for many different purposes, you know, to draft agreements, to negotiate agreements, to revise agreements. But then there's also this aspect of law practice about counseling and advising people and talking through you know, the big picture with people, you know, um, I mean, I, when I'm thinking through big picture with people, when we get deal number one, which, you know, not always, but a lot of the time is a publishing deal, but not always, you know, we have to think through how is this publishing deal going to work in relation to a record deal? How is, you know, is this going to make sense for us long-term? You know, are we going to get, um, you know, is there co-publishing on this? If there is, do we get to um, get certain rights back after a certain period of time? Um, there's so many nuances to think through. And part of the process is the counseling and advising. You know, the, look, this deal, you know, this deal has a few flaws, but this company and this champion, there's no one else like this. You know, maybe we, maybe we give a little bit here to get a little bit there. Um, so there's certainly compromises as well. Yep, I totally agree with you. Um, so, uh, besides, uh, you know, the things that you uh, cannot help, let's go back into the things that you do help with. And I wanted to jump into networking because this a lot of this has to do with with building those relationships, like you said, building that team out. So, um, in fact, I want to uh, mention the fact that you and I have met because specifically through networking and. Okay. And this is the other thing too. People are like, oh yeah, you know, during the pandemic can't meet with people. I'm calling you out on this right now. That is totally untrue. You can still network and connect with people, even if it's just strictly online, because that's literally how Rachel and I have met was through uh, a good friend of ours who has this whole network matchmaking group essentially. And we were connected together and we had our Zoom call together and we've never, ever met in person. Hopefully that will change at some point, but um, we've never, ever actually met in pe person. And, you know, it's a, it's amazing. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've I've met so many incredible people through the net, the matchmaking group and I'm meeting still meeting people all the time. You know, it, it, like the, oh, and yeah. while this is recording, we're in the middle of the pandemic and I'm still meeting new people. It's just that I'm doing it all online now. Oh, I meet new people every day. Um, I, I somehow, you know, I, I get people who come to me all the time and they're like, how are you meeting so many people? I pretty much live on zoom and I, I pretty much live in my home office and I spend probably about 12 hours a day in here, just networking, connecting, making friends. Um, 
at the beginning of the pandemic, it was a little weird. We were all trying to find our way and figure out where to go. And then in about May, I got involved in a, in a networking group. Um, and Mike, I know I sent this to you about, they're called the Virtual Red Door Hangs. And they're named after a bar in uh, Midtown in Nashville, right by Music Row, um, called Red Door. Very popular hang spot. Tip off to all of you if you come to Nashville and you're not in pandemic times. You might want to hit Red Door. Um, and yes, it's a trashy, dirty Southern bar. No offense, Red Door. Um, but, um, you know, it's a good place to, to hang. And my, my, my friend, um, Zach Green over at CSAC was the one who started them. And I attended, I want to say like the second or third one in May. And I was so, we, it was, it's just a pod of about 15 people, um, both creatives and industry professionals. And we just go round robin style and we introduce ourselves and we kind of follow some prompts about our story, maybe a funny story in the music industry, you know, what kinds of people we like to work with and meet, those, those basic things. And Zach, being such a kind person, um, let me partner with him for those virtual red door hangs. And so I have probably attended since May geez, maybe between eight to 10 virtual red door hangs a month, meeting between 10 and 15 people each time. Um, and then in addition to that, I have also, um, and, I, and I say this only because I just met someone new today. So I can, I can say that this is truly what I'm doing. I've become a bit of a hub for the creatives, the independent creative writers, especially in the Nashville pop community. Um, for those of you who may not realize it, pop music in Nashville is exploding right now. Um, not in the popular sense, but in the um, sense of companies are starting to get very involved in on the uh, record label and publishing side in pop here in Nashville. And, um, and I've become a bit of a hub for the independent pop people. If somebody new moves to town and one of my friends slash clients, because it's all the same for me, essentially, um, meets this new person, they send the new person to me. And I listen to their music, I talk to them over Zoom, I get a read on them, and uh, I set them up with new friends. And I do email intros. Um, and I try to connect people with um, co-writers and friends that fit who they are. And I've, I've had a few people tell me like they moved here from another city during the pandemic, they didn't know how to meet anyone. Um, and then I ended up at this outdoor socially distant show where I got to see these two guys from New York who had just moved here hanging with all of my Nashville people because we were able to connect them all. That's um, amazing. It was so beautiful, but that's what this is all about. You know, when I'm standing there with my mask, like, Oh, look at these, look at all these fun writers having fun. You know, like that's what I'm all about. I just want them to have fun together. Um, and, and so it's one of those things where, um, where I believe that you just have to adapt your style and yourself to fit with the current environment. So I do, I do Zooms every day I'm on Zoom without fail, every weekday. I would say weekends, I, I try to take off, but I end up on Zoom on the weekends too, no shame. Um, but I do everything on, on my computer. I mean, it's just straight up. I'm on here all the time. I'm attending, um, you know, networking events. Um, I'm doing, you know, the, the friend connection thing that we do. Um, I'm doing virtual red door hangs. And then I actually um, have taken a position on a board that I'm on, on the social side of things, because I, my next move is that I'm going to translate all of these online connections I've made 
into this organization to help the members network with each other. And so I'm really excited um, to be able to bring that in. And it's a young music industry professional group out of Nashville. And so I'm really excited to bring in these virtual networking components and ideas and concepts and make them fit for this group um, of young industry professionals and to add that value to people's lives as this pandemic continues. That's incredible. You know, and that's, that's the thing is like, you know, I, it's not only just a smart move, but that's one of the biggest, the biggest thrills with myself as well, besides checking out my demos for uh, the bands I have. But outside of that is just the fact that I get to meet so many amazing people and learn about their journeys in life. And uh, it, 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 you just don't know where it's going to take you. And that is definitely by far one of my favorite things about the position that I'm in is that I have the ability to do those things. I have a reason to do those things because that's part of my job is to build those relationships with people, which is why that's a smart aspect of it because it's an age old saying, but it's totally true. It's, it's about who you know in this industry and it's a hundred percent true, but you do so by joining networking groups. You do so by doing these zoom calls. I know a lot of people are sick of it too bad. Go ahead. You got to do more, like do more zoom calls because it's way better than doing email at times. So, you know, take the opportunity to connect with people and in, and you know, you don't necessarily have to be friends, friends with them, but you know, at least, you know, see who you can be colleagues with and people that you mutual, that you respect that I, it's just, it's so important in this industry. It is. And you know what else I will say too, people are so sick of zoom. You know what? Sometimes doing things in life are not all fun. I would look, I would much rather be in person with people. I'd much rather, I mean, I, I'm, I miss, I use, I, I like to give people big hugs. I'm, you know, I like to laugh really loud. And sometimes I have to mute myself on, on group chats because I'm laughing so hard that I don't want to like cause everyone to, you know, break up with the noise. Um, but you know, I hear a lot from artists too, during these times, like I, I was just talking to someone today and they said this to me, like, Oh, I really don't like doing TikTok, or I really don't like, you know, making Instagram posts. And, you know, and I hear a lot of music industry professionals. I really don't like getting on zooms. Well, guess what? To succeed right now as an artist, you need to be posting to TikTok and you need to be filling out that, you know, you need to have that Instagram content up and you need to have videos on YouTube. And yeah, it probably sucks. If I were an artist, I probably, you know, well, if I were an artist, I'd probably be on TikTok three times a day. Let me be honest with you. That's just (laughs) my style. Um, But, you know, same thing for the industry people. Yeah, all these Zooms, they kind of suck. I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to hide that fact, but if we don't embrace them for what they are, you know, if we didn't have this technology, Mike, you and I wouldn't have met yep, and we, exactly. and we wouldn't have these, these conversations and these thought processes and these relationships. And so we sometimes have to step out of our comfort zone or our fun zone to do what's best. I completely agree with you. It, I've met so many new people because of Zoom. And that's the other thing, too, that video conferencing, if we think about it before the pandemic, you know, video people, we did video conferencing, but once in a while, right? Maybe once every month, couple of months or so forth. It usually was phone call or, or in person. Yeah. Now we're at the point where we're doing Zoom calls almost, you know, for like a lot of us on a daily basis. And we're able to 
to meet, like even though it's virtually, we're still able to meet with people where normally it would just been a, uh, an email conversation, which is, you know, a lot is lost in translation when you're dealing with an email in comparison to in person. So we literally have as a society, or especially in our industry, I'll, I'll narrow it down a little bit to our industry, that we've leaped about, I don't know, five, 10 years of where this was eventually going to go. And to me, that's what gets me really excited. And same thing is true with TikTok. And I, and I get the same things from some of my artists too about, you know, oh, I got to make another Instagram post or TikTok or whatever the case is. And I tell them, I say, look, at the end of the day, it's a tool, just like mm-hmm. anything else. It's a tool. You can choose to use it or not. If you choose not to use it, that's okay. But then you're losing out on that benefit of what that platform can give you. So that means we would have to focus on something else, but you're missing out on opportunities if you're not going to take advantage of that platform and understand how it works and how it benefits you. These tools are free or you can advertise on them and get, you know, pennies on the dollar if you do it right on getting new attention. So it's to the benefit of you, but at the end of the day, it's a tool. And if you are an artist, part of your job is to present yourself out there. It's going to be your own branding. That is part of your responsibility as an artist is to do those different types of things, whether that's on Facebook or Instagram or while, you know, whether you're performing up on stage or getting covered by press or being interviewed on a podcast. Those are all those things that are part of what you do as an artist. Absolutely. And, and, and that's the thing is that every job, every job has aspects that, that are not fun, yep. you know, for every person. And I'll be honest with you. There's a lot of aspects of my job that a lot of people don't like. Um, you know, for example, I love doing research. I think it is so much fun. I know that sounds very strange. That's just my personality. Um, but I do love researching. Most lawyers that I know hate it with a burning passion. So, and, and what I hate is, um, truthfully, I hate just um, basic, you know, document prep, you know, the entering data in. I like using my brain. That gives me a lot of joy. That gives me a huge kick if I can go and try to find a solution or a loophole or some way to to argue a position. But there are aspects of every job that each of us hate. And sometimes I have to do, you know, basic data plug-in in a document to get it ready out the door. You, you got to suck it up sometimes and be an adult and do what you got to do. Yep, I agree. Speaking of which, um, about sucking up and doing what you need to do, there's, um, there's been an interesting, I've seen this happen for the last, I don't know, five years or so, where the responsibilities of entertainment lawyers have kind of changed a bit, where mm-hmm. now you, where it's not necessarily this expected, but I've seen now entertainment lawyers having the responsibilities of managers, especially, that, that's the most common one, and I'm I'm curious what your take is on that. Like, do you feel like that's a good thing? It's a bad thing? You know, what what what's your opinion about entertainment lawyers being more of a managerial role? So first of all, I'm 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 laughing really hard right now, trying not to let it interfere with the recording. Because let me let me say this: I get asked all the time, "Don't you? Why don't you go into management? Or why don't you go into publishing?" Because I do things in in both of those fields as a hobby, essentially. I don't charge for anyone. I just do it. It's, it's kind of a problem, but it's fun. It's a fun problem to have. Um, I see it a lot and I don't necessarily think it's in the artist's best interest or in anyone's best interest. Um, and I, and I just had a wonderful discussion with a very experienced manager earlier today 
Um, and the comment that was made to me by this manager was, if you're going to manage an artist, you have to be doing it full time. You have to be focused on managing the artist. And I 100% agree with that. Um, you know, I, I am constantly, you know, as a lawyer, I'm constantly prepping documents, doing markups, getting on calls, negotiating deals. If I were managing someone in addition to that, I would drop the ball. And I hate dropping the ball. Dropping the ball is like my least favorite thing. Well, and, and procrastination. I hate that too. Um, but I really hate dropping the ball on stuff. I, I like to be um, very accurate, precise, timely. I think those are such important things. And I think it's a respect thing too for clients. Um, and I, I think that what, what people need is they need managers who are fully dedicated to being managers. Um, but yes, have I seen that trend? Yes. Have I experienced that trend? Yes. Um, is it very difficult to do? Yes. Um, I tell people all the time what, what people need is a real manager. You know, I, I can help people to a certain extent. I can make introductions. I can help them meet champions. Um, I can help them find the right, you know, person or company or, you know, place to go. Um, sometimes I can find random performance opportunities, you know, all sorts of random things. I've landed very strange things, but I can't do the day-to-day -day management aspect. You know, I, when I connect people for co-writes, which I do all the time, when I'm connecting people for co-writes, I tell them, I'm like, look, I can do intro emails. You know, those are easy for me. I have everyone's email addresses. I have a good form, you know, statement that I do to get everyone on board but I can't book your calendar for you. Like if I were doing calendar booking on top of everything else I do, I don't think I could survive. Um, and so I think it's a matter of balancing, first of all, setting expectations fairly um, and, and telling an artist, you know, if a lawyer has to step in as a manager temporarily, which is what usually ends up happening, at least in my situations, um, setting the expectations fairly and helping the artist understand we've got to get another manager on board. I'll help you keep this afloat because I care and I want to do you right, but we've got to bring someone in to do this full time. Yep. I, it's interesting because I, I found it very intriguing when I, when I was learning about entertainment lawyers taking these positions and in some ways to me, it made sense because I do agree with you, I had those concerns where they would be overextending themselves. But the same token, too, is that entertainment lawyers do get this vast network that, of mm -hmm. people that they work with, even if they're in the developing stage, because you're, you know, because you're helping them get secure these deals, which in vastly increases your network, not only with your own artists, but with other record labels that you that you've dealt with and everything like that, too. So to me, it was, it was a very interesting thing where I thought, well, that kind of makes sense that an entertainment lawyer could potentially go into that position as well because they already have those resources and network. And again, it was funny because I've been on and off being a manager for ever since A20 started. And because I had the same concerns is that making sure that we're not overextending ourselves because then we'll end up dropping the ball. So it's all about setting those expectations and uh, do as best of a job as possible with my artists and explain to them, this is what we'll do, this is what we'll not do, and so forth. Because even within management, 
it gets crazy on what people do, you know, that, that different managers will do within it. Some of them are really, really into the tech side of things. So they're going to handle the social media. They'll check the numbers to the T and do all these different types of things. But, you know, and, but, and they'll sort of book their calendar a little bit here and there and so forth and then get them opportunities and so forth. Some of them are then the complete opposite where they're not going to deal with their calendar or anything like that. And they're just strictly just going out there and making connections and finding opportunities for them. And they're still considered a manager in both those positions. But it's such a very blanket term now of what a manager is and does. And that's another thing, too, that I always suggest to any artist that's out there is that if you are looking for any kind of representation, whether it's an entertainment lawyer, manager, even label, label like will do management jobs, too. Like it's crazy. So make sure that it's very clear what they're going to be, res- you know, they're going to be responsible for, what they're going to help you with, and also just as important, what they're not going to help you with, because you want to make sure that you have the right fit for what your needs are, and that can be all different types of roles because they kind of these days they kind of commingle with each other. Absolutely, and you know what I will say though, um, historically in the music industry, there are a lot of uh, former entertainment lawyers who become managers. Um, and I, and I've seen that historically, I've seen that currently. I, I mean, it's just, it's a normal transition. Um, I certainly don't believe that's the transition for me, although you never know what life's going to bring, but I certainly don't believe that I don't, I don't think I would enjoy being a manager. I think I would be a little rough on people to be honest with you. Um, but, but I see a lot of people leave entertainment law and get into management and I, and I do understand that, um, you know, but doing, but being an entertainment lawyer simultaneously with being a manager, whew, even the minimal amount that I've been involved in that, you know, just to the extent that I've needed to be, oh, I would never wish that on anyone. That is rough. That is a rough job. And, and look, you're going to drop the ball somewhere. If you're doing all those things, it's, it's, unless you have, you know, an assistant booking a calendar and this and, you know, and a bunch of other things, it's going to be pretty hard to sustain, Um, you know, and you want people on your team focused on different aspects of your career. You know, you want the manager to be focused on introductions, overall big picture, branding, all those things. You want the agent looking for gigs. You want the lawyer looking for introductions, opportunities, good deals. Um, You know, there's, you want everyone doing their part. Absolutely. Yeah, I do agree with that. Is that at some point you do want to build out your team, uh, which is kind of interesting because I, I will love your take on this, too, is that, you know, a lot of artists are saying probably thinking to themselves like, that's great, but I've been emailing like everybody like crazy and always getting back to my emails and, you know, I can't get anybody on board of my team and, and blah, blah, blah and so forth. Right. And uh, so when do you feel that it's the right moment for an artist to to get a team put together for them? Oh, I love this question. I love this question because there both is and isn't a right moment. Okay. Um, and, and so what I usually do, um, I will, I'll speak from a lawyer perspective and then I'll speak from the other perspectives as, cause I'm usually involved in building out the team to a large extent. Um, and I think that's an important conversation to have. So the number one thing I think that to the extent that you are, you know, writing, creating, releasing music, you probably want to have a lawyer involved to some extent. Um, Because let's be honest, releasing music in and of itself, in large part based on copyrights and contracts. And so having a lawyer involved early 
to think through, well, what, you know, what should the producer royalty be? Should the producer have any ownership in the master? Should, you know, should, you know, what happens if a major label gets involved? How is this producer going to get paid? Because majors pay on a different basis than an independent release. Um, those types of things from day one, massively critical. Um, you know, things like trademarks, you definitely want to protect your brand. You know, there, there's different elements that you certainly want to protect from day one onward. So I usually tell people, lawyer, I'm usually the first person on the team with a lot of people I work with. And I, I like that method because it keeps everything clean and neat and more manageable long-term. Now, where you get to the second person on the team is where the real trick comes in because it really depends on where you are in your career and what you're doing. So for example, um, managers, everybody wants a manager. Let me say this, managers are not some type of magic potion that are going to long, and same thing with record labels, and we're gonna talk about that too. They are not some magical, you know, potion or spell or, you know, um, you know, they're not going to just make your career happen. You have to make your career happen. You have to want it more than anyone on your team. You have to want it and you have to put in the work. And I tell people, I work really hard. When I see my people working on rights and then emailing me at 11 at night, I'm actually okay with that because that means that they're putting in the work. Now, if I know that they've been day drinking all afternoon and then they're emailing me at 11 at night, that's a whole other conversation because yes, I do watch social media. But, you know, if I know you're putting in the work, I respect that. Um, but the next step for people, you know, you have to, first of all, for managers, you have to have something to manage, okay? If, if your management is literally, you know, booking rights for yourself and, you know, figuring out when you're gonna play this show and blah, 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 I'm gonna be honest, you probably don't need a manager yet. When you need a manager is when you are so busy that you barely have time to create. And that's the core of your job is creating. The other reason that management should get involved is when you have money coming in, because let's be very straightforward. Managers get paid on it. There are some managers who get paid up front with a flat fee. I see that for a lot of developing acts, but not all of us have the money to do that. And so we have to look at, you know, if a manager is going to be taking a commission of 15 to 20% of adjusted gross. Notice I mentioned that in this because I see a lot of management agreements for gross and I'm just throwing that in as a little tip for everyone. Um, standard deductions, people, standard deductions. Um, but, you know, if you have, if you're not making money, if you want a manager in on, you know, speculation or belief, I'm going to tell everyone on this thing, that's going to be really hard to do, especially right now. Managers are bleeding money right now in this industry because management commissions in large part are based on um, live shows and merch sales. And guess what is not happening right now. Now I'm all bye-bye. Yep. All of it. So, you know, managers now are managing their clients exactly as they used to for huge pay cuts. I'm really serious. That's really what's happening in this industry right now. That's the truth. Um, there are some companies that are still doing well that have come up with ways to create revenue, you know, from live streams, digital, um, meet and virtual meet and greets. I mean, I, I do those as a fundraiser for a nonprofit that I, that I work with. Um, 
And I'm all about that kind of stuff. But what we have to understand is that people do have to get paid to do their job and we can't work for free forever. And so there has to be some type of income or revenue for that manager to commission off of. And it has to make sense business-wise for them. So that's, that's a top thing to think through. Then let's talk about the, um, you know, the record label side of things. You know, um, there's a number of different label structures. Mike, you have one that, you know, that really intrigues me because I love the artist. Look, I love an artist-friendly model. I always have and I always will. That is, um, that is my, my favorite thing. Although we all know, you know, if you go and do a major label deal, you're going to probably, not always, not always, but probably have to give up copyright ownership. And you're probably going to have to go to a royalty-based deal where instead of having an 80-20 split in favor of the artist, it's going to be an 80-20 split in favor of the label if you can even get them to 20 because you're probably going to be between 15 and 17 uh, percent on a royalty just to be straightforward. And sometimes more, sometimes less, all depends on the label you're dealing with. Um, so it's, you know, you have to really think through timing things and with labels today at least the majors I'll, I'll speak from a major label perspective is when there's money coming in because the major labels they aren't developing people anymore you have to develop yourself and you have to create a social media following and you have to create a fan base and you have to create streaming numbers and the people that I'm seeing getting those those major label deals I mean some of them have a million listeners a month plus and they're going to the majors to get the, the radio promotion take it to the next level and I don't blame them I would too um, but you have to think through the timing on this stuff and a lot of this is building it out yourself booking agent um, you know sometimes booking agents get in early as well but just to speak to this as well most of the agencies at least pre-covid because I you know let's be real in our covid times talking about agencies is a ever-evolving process but pre-covid the big agencies would not touch most artists until they had a major label deal or even an indie label deal yep. they wouldn't even touch it um you know it's it's and and same thing like when you think about publishers you know the publishers they're looking right now they're looking at how do we make money in these strange times because we're still not sure and Mike, I want to mention this on here because I think this is such a critical thing that every one of your listeners should know. We're not sure how public performance royalties are actually going to pay out from COVID. So one of the things, um, and I've done a little publishing administration over the years, I've kind of dipped my hands into every pot. I've even booked shows. I'm not really sure how or why, but things in life happen. But one of the things with publishing that everyone needs to understand is that when you're collecting public performance royalties from ASCAP and BMI, those royalties take between six and 12 months to process. And the way I usually explain it to people, it's like you're having a royalty baby, it takes nine months. That's the way I, that's the way I break it down for people. Just think about how long it takes to have a baby, that's when you're gonna get paid. So when we're looking at public performance royalties, we have to remember that this pandemic started in March. We are in November. We are only eight months in. So the full effect of public performance royalties and how those are going to pay out from during the pandemic has yet to be seen fully. Um, and what we've experienced in the last eight months is cancellations of all live shows from stadiums to clubs. All of that income is gone. Wipe that off the board. 
Restaurants and bars, public performance income, a big chunk of that income is gone. We got to wipe that off. Shopping centers, income, gone. Wipe that off. Now, thank goodness we still have public performance, public performance from radio. But here's the issue, and this is how we're not sure if this is going to play. All of these people in our country have started working from home, and they're not commuting to work anymore. And guess where terrestrial radio is most commonly listened to? In the car. In the car. And so we're in a situation where our listenership is reportedly down. Is that going to affect public performance royalties? This yep. is a huge question mark that exists in our industry right now. And Rolling Stone did a, a really nice article on it. Um, I've, I've been talking about this since about April. And a lot of people in the industry, um, when I first started talking about it, they were like, oh, this is like doomsday. You, you know, you're just stressing, you know, it's just more stuff for us to worry about. Well, Rolling Stone wrote about it like within the last month. So it's something we really need to be thinking about. And it's something we need to be aware of. And we need to think about this for our publishers. Because if our publishers aren't making enough money to, you know, to sustain, how do we keep our writers going? You know, so many writers depend on advances to keep them afloat. If we start losing publishers because we start having a huge dip in royalties, and let's, let's be real, from a publishing side of things, mechanicals on streaming services are terrible absolutely egregiously terrible and synchronization you know sync licenses let's just be very straightforward on those when we were shut down and we still are in large parts of the country all of those tv shows and movies for sync licensing shut down so how do we work through this you know and i think there's i think there's a huge question here that as an industry we need to think through and and be realistic about but i'm hoping that i'm wrong I'm hoping that the royalties come out well, but I'm prepared for anything. Well, that's why it's also important to, to diversify yourself. And it's, uh, it's something that we do internally in our company, as well as what we tell all of our artists, is that your income shouldn't be coming from one or even a, or two or three sources. It should be coming from several that complement each other. So that can, that can mean lots of different things. You mentioned about merchandise sales. Well, there's plenty of options now to do online merchandising. Is the deals great? No, they're usually garbage, um, especially for the on-demand ones. But there's also zero inventory. There's no upfront costs or anything along those lines. So you have to look at it on the, in those factors. Or going into Twitch or Patreon. There's lots of different options that are out there these days. And you don't have to do all, all of them. You can do like a couple of them, but it's so important right now to make sure that, you know, whatever your income stream was before, you should definitely not be just solely relying on that now. This is the time now to really start thinking about what other areas of income can you jump into right now to support yourself. You know, honestly, if I was an artist right now too, and if I, especially if I had a separate skill skill set, I would be working on that. A lot of artists, they are graphic designers or photographers or videographers or programmers or anything along those lines. I would be also working on that even more too, because not only does it help your own career by having those skill sets, but also gives you that supplemental income so that no matter what happens in the industry, like hopefully then this, you know, in the music industry, do you have other industries that you can also rely on and vice versa, that if the music industry comes out on top, but then you really got really hurt on some other area, you have that you can rely on as well. So I feel, especially these days, and again, 
it, I think it, this was just inevitably going to happen anyway. But with the pandemic, it just amplified the fact that if you were not already thinking about diversification now, you know, you're you're already behind the game and you really do need to think about it. If you're listening to this podcast and you're still hoping that, you know, li- whenever live shows come back or or how you're or hoping that your royalty is going to be the same, most likely that's not going to be the case. And you need to start thinking about these things right now on how you're going to pivot yourself so that that hopefully that some once that money starts coming back, that's fantastic, but you have at least something else that you can rely on too. Yeah. And and let me share something um, without giving away too many specifics about my clients, but I have this one client of mine who is completely independent. And I've never and I and I want to I want to be very clear about this. I have never seen anyone, independent, major label, anything, have so many incredible branding opportunities and take them and use them to the fullest, okay? This guy, he's in the country space, and I want to just give you a brief list of all the different things he has, you know, projects in. So, obviously, he's a recording artist and touring artist. He has a t-shirt line. He has a boot line. This is for real now. He has a line of, um, of, uh, of uh, gun storage cases. He has a sock line. This is all for real. Um, I want to say we have a knife line now. Um, and I mean, this, when we talk about expanding your brand, do it in a way that's authentic to you. So if you're in, you know, if you're in, um, you know, if you really like tea, I run into this a lot. There's a lot of singers, they love tea. My law partner loves tea. It's a thing. My husband also loves a good tea. Um, you know, think about how can you create some synergy between what you do and what these other companies are doing? You know, do you have a good social media following? Can you, can you do like, you know, tea time with, you know, artist name? You know, can you, you know, can you create kind of a short video series for YouTube? Can you, you know, what can you do to diversify what, what your income source is and how you're branding yourself? You have to be thinking through that at all times. And the music industry today, I, I want to say this too, and I know for a lot of uh, creatives in music, this is a painful thing to hear, but it is the truth and it needs to be said. Today's music industry is not fully about music. It is very much the lifestyle branding industry. They're selling you not just a song, because let's be real, we all love a good song and a good recording, but you're also being sold dance moves, merchandise associated with that, the lifestyle, the vibe. I mean, you look at, you know, you look at, I'll give you an example, you look at rappers. I'll just use rappers in general. I love rap music. I love hip hop music. Um, You wouldn't guess it with me. Totally something I really deeply love and want to respect in every way possible. But you look at some of these rappers with their chains, like um, Quavo was on something the other night with a freaking Yoda chain, you know? Um, and I was laughing my face off. I mean, my husband, I was like, Dick, look at this Yoda chain. Like, this is crazy. Um, you know, but you have to think they're selling a lifestyle. You know, you look at Migos um, and they were on James Corden and they're, you know, they're in his, uh, you know, was it drive through karaoke, car, carpool karaoke, whatever yep. he's calling it. Yeah. Um, and they're pulling out stacks of cash in the middle of this thing. I mean, it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. I could not stop laughing. Um, it was just so funny. But you have to understand they're selling a lifestyle. They are marketing a lifestyle. That's what is being done in this industry. You go look at, you know, 
Uh, I mean, you even go look at, you know, Lizzo. Lizzo is a fabulous woman and deserves all the praise in the world. Her music is spectacular. It is unique. It is creative. It is, it is um, genre bending in popular music. But she's also selling a lifestyle of, of, you know, not only being a big woman, which I love. I think it's terrific. I think we need to celebrate all body types, but also being a strong black woman which I think is beautiful and wonderful. And we need to have those strong, you know, representatives from every area and every walk of life before us in this world. Um, and so, you know, but she's also selling this lifestyle, this fun, you know, you go look at her Instagram and she's, you know, she's dressed as the fly on Mike Pence's head at the debate. And she's, you know, she's in a, you know, a bikini and she's having a good time. She's selling a lifestyle and that's okay. But you have to understand that's part of this business at this point. And it always has been, but more so now than ever. Well, that's also why I, I specifically say artist and not musician. Yeah. That's exactly why I say that. Because when you are an artist, you you're expre- you're you are expressing feelings and you're you're expressing yourself as you know, whatever you're trying to convey. And that's not just true with your own music, but with everything that you do. And that's something that I, and also you mentioned about the music industry too. Well, the music industry is part of the entertainment industry. That is a segment of it. It's entertainment. Yes. You want to have value there. Yes. You want to convey your message of whatever that message is and that you're hoping to invoke a certain type of feeling from people because of it or a cert, or, um, you know, something that they can think about for, further, whether it's thought provoking or, you know, or, you know, making them more depressed or making them feel happy about themselves or reassuring, whatever the case is, right? It has to always start from there. But in order to get their attention, you have to think about all these different other things. How are you going to ultimately connect to them? Because especially now more than ever, there is so many things out there that are demanding our attention. How are you going to get yourself above the fold? Mm -hmm. And the, the irony is that now more than ever is the easiest way to do so. Even though there's the most that's out there, there's the most competition there ever was in our existence. But at the same token too, is that we've had now more tools than I've ever possibly imagined on how to get that word out there and how to get yourself out there and how to um, express yourself and whatever that ultimately means. But as an artist, that is something that you have to think about. It's, it's not just about the music, it's about everything that you're representing yes yes it is a it is a full circle thing for art you know it's it's you got to get the whole perspective the whole 360 it you know it and not even referring to 360 deals which we can always talk about but i not a fun topic for me all the time um but you know you got to get the full perspective everything from you know your outward facing brand to your inward values and who you are as a person and what you enjoy and what you like you know um, there's, there's so many components to share with the world, but you have to be willing, you know, it's, it isn't just music. It is a full picture at this point. Absolutely. You know what, Rachel, I'm going to have you come back on the podcast cause we talked about so much, but I think that's <laughs> such a good point to, to end this at. So I think we should end it now, but I would love to have you come back onto the podcast. And cause I think I'd love to talk about 360 deals and a whole bunch of other stuff too. So Ooh, we can I would it. love to talk, I would love to talk about it too. And, uh, I hope it wouldn't scare your listeners too much, but, uh, but I, you know, I would be so happy to come back, Mike. And I appreciate you having me on here. Oh, my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for being on it. I do really appreciate it.
Of course, Mike. Thank you so much for listening to the 8020 show. To learn more about 8020 Records, you can check us out on pretty much any social media at 8020records or visit our website at www.8020records.com. Until next time, be happy, be healthy, and be productive.